From Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land, it's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking with Christina Woodkey, a designer, educator, and author who's worked for a string of iconic internet companies. Yahoo, LinkedIn, MySpace, and Zynga as a designer and executive. Now she teaches design thinking, story structure, and how to use OKRs with her own unique twist. I've found a balance in my life by treating my life as if it was a startup. And instead of product market fit, I was looking for life happiness fit. Christina has a gift for bringing ideas from different disciplines into design and management. Listen in and learn about Christina's boundary-crossing model of design thinking as distributed cognition. It blew my mind, and I know you'll enjoy it too. Welcome, Christina, to the Getting to Alpha podcast. Thank you, Amy Jo. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. For those who don't know you, why don't you start with a whirlwind tour of your background? Tell us about how you got started in design and tech, and then the forks on the road along the way, how you decided what to pursue. Well, there's only uh, one kind of tour of my background, and it's going to be whirlwind. I first came to San Francisco as a art student and painted and waited tables for about, good Lord, almost 10 years. And I was having painting shows in various art galleries. And then my boyfriend's best friend asked me, hey, do you want to build a Yahoo killer? And I didn't really want to build a Yahoo killer, but my arms were tired and my feet hurt. And I thought perhaps doing something else with my time might be useful. And that's how CNET hired me to review 50 websites a week and build their directory. Well, I got to say, reviewing 50 websites a week, I fell completely, madly, passionately in love for the web. In fact, sometimes I think I was spending most of my life just waiting for the web to show up in my life. From there, I went on to work at eGreetings, became a very early information architect, wrote the book on information architecture, uh, went on to, I'm going to snap and repeat. From there, I went to work at eGreetings, uh, became an information architect very early on, wrote a book on information architecture called Blueprints for the Web, started my own consultancy, uh, left that and started a product startup called Kuchina Media. Kuchina Media was an amazing experience. I built a startup before Eric Reese and Steve Blank were really around telling you how to build a startup. I was just kind of making everything up. And then one day I came across Steve Blank's book and I picked it up and I read it. It was this, this new book that he'd self-published through Cafe Press. And I went, oh my God, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I uh, looked up his name on the web and found his phone number and drove out to Half Moon Bay to meet with him. And we had a two-hour conversation. At the end of it, I realized my startup probably didn't have a huge future. I shopped it around. I was lucky enough to have it picked up by LinkedIn. Me and my co-founder worked there for a few years. Then MySpace, Zynga. Uh, I was a general manager for a while. And then I kind of hit a wall and dropped out of that whole world and asked myself, you know, where where is meaning where is this passion I used to have for making great things? And, and I've, I've found it again by teaching at CCA and teaching the next generation of interaction designers and entrepreneurs. 
I also teach the current generation over at Stanford Continuing Studies, teaching them how to use design thinking to be more effective at finding product market fit. And I will say uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in my second marriage with the internet and I love it as much as ever. <laughs> so what topics as you're teaching in these wonderful institutions and sharing your knowledge, what are the topics that are nearest and dearest to your heart? What is it that you're most passionate about sharing? Well, as I mentioned, one of the things that comes up over and over again is design thinking. You know, it's funny because when I first heard about design thinking, I thought this is a, a load of hooey. I don't know what the rating is on your podcast, but we'll see if we can keep it PG. And I thought IDEO was just trying to like rebrand UCD as something they could sell for more money. And then I was lucky enough, I was invited to teach at the Copenhagen Institute for Interaction Design. And I took those students through a one-week version of my uh, entrepreneurship class, and they got to product market fit in one week. And that really shook me up. Like, how could you get to product market fit so quickly? That's crazy. And I realized that it was because they use their tools as designers. They use design thinking approaches to every single aspect of the entrepreneurial process. The way they talk to people, the way they manage the data, the way they quickly prototyped and validated and tested. It was just really effective. And so uh, when I came back to California, I went ahead and uh, deeply integrated the design thinking approach into my entrepreneurship classes. And I've been extraordinarily surprised and, and delighted at what a big difference it makes to people's ability to be effective. And as you know, Amy Jo, since you run an entrepreneurship course, the one thing that startups don't have is time. And any time that you have an approach that allows you to accelerate and be more effective, you've got you to grab that and hold on tight. So design thinking can mean a lot of different things, and it is practiced in different ways. How is it that you practice it? I've got to say, I do have a little bit of a different point of view than most people about design thinking. So when I first started questioning, hey, is this design thinking thing, maybe it's an actual thing, maybe it's not just marketing, um, I thought, well, let's think about those words. Let's think about the word thinking. What if design thinking was a type of cognition? So I reached out to a friend of mine who teaches at Kent State, and I said, is there a chance that design thinking is actually a, a different kind of cognition? Is it an effective way to think? And he pointed me at this amazing body of literature which is uh, around distributed cognition. So distributed cognition is a relatively recent phenomenon. And in it, scientists are beginning to believe that we don't think with our brain. And I just love that. Like, I've always thought I thought with my brain. But it turns out that if we want to be truly effective at thinking, we need to think not just with our brain, but with our hands, with our bodies, with paper, with pencils, with tools, with walls. To get your head around it, just picture trying to play a card game or a game of Scrabble with your hands behind your back, and you're not allowed to rearrange the cards. You're not allowed to rearrange the tiles of Scrabble. Can you imagine how incredibly hard that is to figure out what words you should make or what, car what hands you might have? The fact is we think better when we can manipulate the objects in the world around us. So what's happening when design thinkers sit down with a problem? Well they don't just sit around a conference table and go, hey, Joe, what do you think? Well, hey, Jim, what do you think? You know, They actually very quickly start going out and talking to customers, building prototypes, 
writing ideas on post-it notes, rearranging the post-it notes, sketching out potential prototypes, tearing them apart, rearranging them. All this physical manipulation of information and of data and this constant testing it against the world is a really fantastic example of how distributed cognition can be more effective. And I think one of the things that Lean has always had is everybody sort of sensed that it was science-y, you know, maybe not science, but science-y with its hypothesis and all that. But I guess I'm saying it's not science-y, it's, it's actually science. That both lean and design thinking, which um, in a lot of ways are two sides of the same coin, they're all a type of distributed cognition. And it is literally a better way to think. Awesome. I love hearing your point of view. Are you bringing this distributed cognition thinking into the way that you're teaching students and educating the next generation of interaction designers? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's really fascinating. So I, like I said, I teach at, at CCA. I'm teaching some sophomores right now in a class called Story. And in this class, they have to give talks. And what they always think is, hey, I'm just going to open up PowerPoint and I'm going to think real hard with my brain and then I'm going to write this brilliant talk. And what I teach them to do instead is sit down with a pad of Post-it notes and then quickly come up with as many ideas as they possibly can, write one idea per Post-it note, and then take all these ideas and put them into groups and see, are there patterns in this? Is there anything you want to build on? And then you map it against a framework. So a great example of a framework is the one that Nancy Duarte came up with in her book, Resonate, in which the talk constantly goes back and forth between what is and what might be. My personal favorite framework is actually uh, mapping against the classical story arc. So you have a situation, you have an inciting incident, you have struggles, you finally have a resolution. And mapping these ideas against a framework is a way of using the wisdom of the world but manifesting it in a physical form. Uh, when I teach my Stanford continuing education class uh, on entrepreneurship, this is the exact same way we put together their pitches. So the class ends with a pitch. And of course, they're all sitting there going, hey, I should look up the ultimate pitch deck right on Forbes or what have you and just copy that. And it's like, no, 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 you know, start with your ideas, gather them, free list them, brainstorm them, find the patterns and then shape it into a compelling story, you know? Don't just sit there with PowerPoint going, and here is a number, and here is another number, and here's another number. You know, tell the human story. Talk about the struggles your users are going through. Paint a picture of the passion that they have around your product. And, you know, the VCs, of course, do want the numbers, but they also want to know that this is a problem that people are really struggling with, and this is a problem that they're really seeking to solve. And this is a problem you actually can solve as well. Right. That's fascinating. So one of the challenges with design thinking, particularly how it's implemented, is a lot of focus on ideation, which is great, but not as much engagement with the real constraints of building a product. And so I know that you've been on both sides of that. You teach, you've also built and shipped products. You know, you've dealt with the realities of constraints. So how do you merge or deal with that contradiction or that challenge when you're using design thinking or when you're teaching design thinking? Well, I'm a massive fan of validation. The worst waste of your time possible 
is to come up with an idea and then build it and then ship it and then see what happens. That's an extraordinarily dangerous approach. So what I like to do is I like to, you know, take things when they're still in a smooshy space and take them out with actual potential users who are invested in your success because they have real problems that they want you to solve for them and use the user's insights uh, to try to decide what the right thing to do, what the right thing to build, validate what your decisions you've already made are. So for example, um, there's a methodology that I built off of off of some work we did actually at LinkedIn back in the day, and then I took it and built on it. So we used to do customer development at LinkedIn. And one of the things we would do is we'd talk to people about feature sets, right? Because we wanted to have an MVP. We didn't want to build anything more than we absolutely had to because we had a limited amount of time. And so we would go to them and we'd say, okay, what do you want us to build first? And what do you want us to build next? And we would use that information to try to figure out what goes in the MVP. What I did instead is I list out all the features and I put it on a big chart that has a soon bucket, a later bucket, and an eventually bucket. And the soon bucket is really, really small. The later bucket is a little bigger and the last bucket is, you know, huge because everything can build if, be built if you have enough time. Uh, as Stephen Wright used to say, everywhere is walking distance if you have the time. It's the same thing for software. So then all the features are written on post-it notes and you put what you think is a great MVP in the first bucket. You put things that maybe belong in the MVP. You're not so sure in the second bucket. And then you put all the wacky stuff in the last bucket. And then you would tell users they can move the post-it notes around, but they can't add. They can only swap. So anytime they want to take something from the second bucket and put it in the first, they have to decide what they give up on that first bucket. And, you know, you don't want your users to actually do your deciding for you, but you do want to ask them why. Why is that feature so important? And why is that other feature less important? And there always comes a point where they're like, you know, I can't swap anything, but I wouldn't buy this MVP. At which point you could say, okay, pick what's the one thing, the one thing you would take out of that second bucket to put in the first bucket? And you let them struggle and talk about, well, this does this, but this does this, and you can have them move it. You can then have them stack rank things. If it seems a little too easy, like maybe you made your MVP a little bigger than you really needed to, you can have them stack rank that first bucket. And then when you go to your next interview, you take the bottom three out and put it in the second bucket and then see if your MVP is getting too small. So this is called a participatory roadmap. And I've written it up on my blog, Elegant Hack. And it's a great way to use the principles of design thinking um, in research to pick a reasonable and sensible MVP. That's awesome. It's fascinating that you've had both the experience of working in industry at several, you know, amazing companies and running a startup and also teaching. That gives you a very broad perspective on people that are first-time entrepreneurs or new to design. What are some of the really common mistakes that you see first-time designers and entrepreneurs making when they're in the early stages of testing their idea? What do you wish they would not do so they could make more progress? You said when testing their idea. I mean, the biggest mistake is not testing the idea. People will be like, well, it's too early, so we won't test it. Well, it's never too early to start floating the idea around. Then sometimes they'll get positive feedback from that. But, and they'll go, oh, terrific, let's just go build it. 
But the fact is, there's something that happens when you're talking about an idea. We're using words that are very, very abstract. And so you might be standing in the grocery line and saying, hey, I've got a new app that will stand in line for you. And somebody's like, that's terrific. I would love that app. Uh, And then you build it and nobody will buy it. What happens? Somebody was excited and then they won't buy it. So one of the things that you have to do when you're testing is not just float the idea around, but you have to make it tangible enough to evaluate. And then you have to push people to put a price on it. So on that first topic, I really want to push hard on your listeners to remember that just because you're saying the word chair and I'm saying the word chair doesn't mean we're talking about the same thing. I could be talking about a rocking chair and you could be talking about a big, soft, cushy armchair. You've got to make things tangible for your audience so that they can figure out what the heck this thing is and do they actually like it. Prototypes are amazing. Sketches will do in a pinch. Just make sure that your users are really getting a sense of what the real value is. Then the other thing that's really, 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 rest of the podcast, repeating the word really hard is pricing. Pricing is amazingly difficult. And I will tell you that hardly a week goes by where I'm not looking for another book on effective pricing. There's like very little usable literature out there. So what I'm going to say is just, my current working theory, because I don't think there's a good answer on it. But I do know that people have a price in their head. So when you're trying to figure out how much you can charge for something, you can ask them, you know, what would you pay for this? And they might give you a number and you can say, will you write me a check right now? And I will hold it until it's built and then I will cash it and I will give it to you. And you can see what the reaction is. That's not a great approach. It's an approach. Another thing you can do is you can do something called anchoring, which is you can ask people, have you bought a product similar to this? What is that product? How much did you pay for it? Then you want to always look up how much the product actually is because sometimes people misremember how much they may have paid for something. They might think they paid more or paid less for it. But that's a really terrific approach. I recently helped a small startup that I'm advising trying to, uh, to try to do pricing. And they had literally priced themselves so low that the two of them, these two founders, um, would never be able, probably would never be able to hire another person to work there unless they had a a huge hit. But the likelihood of them having a huge hit was a bit challenging because they couldn't build any more features that people want. And if they'd launched with that price point, they would have been caught in the fact that they didn't have enough people to build features, and yet they weren't charging enough to get enough people. It's just, it's, it's uh, like a vicious death cycle. And what we did is we went out and we interviewed tons and tons of their beta customers. Luckily, they had a, a terrific Kickstarter and um, they had a bunch of people you know, using the product already. And we were able to ask them, what is this product like? How much did you pay for that? What other things in the world are this like? Is it like KQED? Is this like Starbucks coffee? Is this like buying a stapler, you know, what is this, what does this feel like? And it's really interesting because the more I talk to people, the more I realize that everybody sort of has a price in their gut. They have a sort of sense of this app is like this, or this app is like that, or this website is like this, or the service is like that. And so these conversations around pricing is really effective. And then you got to get people to sign up and commit their money. And that is that is another tricky thing. It's actually, believe it or not, easier to do if you have a B2B product because with a B2B product, you can do pilot customers. 
who are on the product council and you set up a contract with them and they know when the bill's going to come. With B2C, it's a lot trickier to, to get your pilot customers. In a lot of ways, Kickstarter is a massive gift to entrepreneurs because then Kickstarter acts as a neutral third party to hold the money. And you do have a sense whether or not you've, you've priced it accurately or not, depending on your ability to raise. In fact, even if you can't raise your total amount, the number of people who have committed to your project can often tell you how close you are to the correct price point. Unfortunately, because you only have one shot at Kickstarter, uh, you want to do a lot of these interviews before you go to that next level. Yeah, it is. It's really changed the game. I feel very grateful for it. I will say um, regarding pricing, you know, if if Steve wasn't dead, you know, Steve Jobs, we'll give him a pass on this, but he really hurt independent game makers and other independent app makers by forcing that price point at a dollar at 99 cents because now everybody's angered at that price point. And if you see an app that's terrific, right? Amazing functionality, a lot of richness to it. And you price it at $29.99. People are like, ha ha, it's in the app store and it's $29.99. There's no way I'm going to pay for that. So we've ended up with um, a whole generation of developers who are doing some fairly sinister in-app purchases and upsell approaches because of Steve Jobs' anchoring choice. He basically forced a lot of people who could have just charged a fair price to instead have to uh, come up with clever payment gates in order to try to just like make a living. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves and, um, you know, sort of what the next form of payment might be. I hope something happens. There's a little bit of hope in the iPad space because there seems to be a little more variety of prices and maybe because it's similar to laptop size, people are mentally willing to make that jump to software, but um, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. And there's also the subscription model, which, you know, if you're building something you can think of as a service that works and it's harder if you're not. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the change Adobe made. I think that is an incredible indicator for all entrepreneurs thinking about the future is uh, they were a very expensive piece of software and they were pirated like crazy. You know, you could go on any BitTorrent site and get so many serial numbers for Photoshop. Not that I did such things, but, you know, they were wildly pirated. But with their new creative cloud services, the price point is lowered. It's psychologically easier to imagine yourself paying $200 a year. And because of the, the cloud-based service, um, pirating is significantly more difficult. So, you know, I think there, that the subscription model is a really sensible direction for, for a lot of folks, especially if you have high-value software that you're in danger of being pirated. There's another mistake that entrepreneurs make all the time. And I would kick myself if I didn't think about this. They don't explore multiple business models. Entrepreneurs often, when they're considering their business model, they just go, oh, we'll do a subscription or, oh, we'll do advertising. And when I started working with Alex Osterwalder's business uh, model canvas and using it in design thinking way in which you generate as many ideas as possible, I realized that you spend time in the revenue box and you can free list one business model after another, after another, after another. You can say, well, there's subscriptions, and then there's in-app purchases, and then there's special events, and you know, and there's a one-time download fee, or we can do seats. You know, you it forces you to think a lot more broadly, and then you can combine them 
And you could have one, two, three different revenue models, which makes you a lot more robust as a company. And when I worked at LinkedIn back in the day, we actually had five business models. Who knows how many they have now? But they had advertising, they had the events business, they had uh, recruiting, they had job listing, um, and then they had a special research division that would allow you to reach people that you normally can't reach. And by having a diversified revenue model, they had a very interesting IPO when they first went live, as opposed to, say, Facebook or Twitter, whose IPO was significantly less interesting and had a singular business model. So one of the things that I I want to encourage entrepreneurs to do is do the research, find out all the different ways you can make money, and then mix them together and find a a healthy combination in order to make sure that your company is going to be uh, robust and healthy going forward. It's a great message. And boy, that can save some time and heartache. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) Because, oh, let's try this model. It didn't work. Three months later, let's try this one. It didn't work either. My God, (laughs) that's waste. I'm so excited about your new book you have out, even more so after this conversation. Tell us about that. Thank you. Uh, The book is called Radical Focus. It is actually the story of a small startup based on several startups that I'd worked on. I kind of combined them and turned into one story and a couple of my students. I think the important thing about a story is it has to have a lot of drama and failure. And unsurprisingly, the startups I've worked with are are not super interested in talking about their struggles and failures. So what I ended up doing is combining several startups that I've worked with along with one of my student startups and turning it into a journey about two young founders who are desperately trying to find product market fit before they run out of money. And then they do it. They figure out what their pivot is, but they can't get the rest of the company behind them. And they end up using uh, objectives and key results to drive the company forward to successfully hit their numbers, create growth, and be able to raise their next round. So I've had wonderful responses to the book. I'm really happy with it. The book itself is a lean startup story. So I originally decided to do it as an MVP. I had proposed a talk at South by Southwest, and I said, hey, I want to give this talk. It's from my upcoming book, which I hadn't even started writing, so I really you know, shouldn't put these things into speaker proposals. But I said, I'm going to give this talk from my upcoming book, The Executioner's Tale, as it was called back then. And South by Southwest wrote back and said, you know, we don't have a spot for your talk, but would you like to do a book reading? And I said, yes. And then I had three months to write a book. And so what I did was I wrote a really, really fast version of the book, 75 pages, had it printed by a local printer in Palo Alto and signed them as if they were like, you know, prints or art or something, numbered signed copies of the book, and then sold them. And I got so much feedback. I I learned amazing things from this experiment that, to be honest, if I did another book, I'd like to do it the same way. I found out really surprising things like tons of people said, I'm so glad this book is short. I was deeply embarrassed that it was only 75 pages. But people loved that it was short. They're like, I can sit down and read it in one sitting. This is terrific. My current book is a little longer. It's 160 pages. But I, I knew that people did not want to read a humongous, heavy book. The other interesting thing I did was with pricing. So I set one price at South by Southwest, but after that, I had quite a few copies left. I sold it over the web and on Twitter. And every time somebody wrote to me saying, I'd like to 
buy your book, I raised the price. And I kept raising the price until people said, that's a little expensive. I would also send them a photo of the book so they knew how thin it was. But I learned that um, the price point was considerably higher than I thought it was. And that was really important to me as well, because as a self-published author, getting the price point set was, was really important to me. Then I went out and, you know, hired a, a cover designer and then fired them and hired another one and fired them and then found one I liked. Uh, I hired a fiction editor to make sure the story was fun to read. Uh, I hired a copy editor. Self-publishing is really an amazing experience. As an entrepreneur, it feels very familiar to me, but I think the power of an author to take their fate into their own hands and make choices about the message to their audience that maybe they can't make under a publisher who doesn't understand them, and of course, realize the value and make some, some real money, uh, I think that authors are tomorrow's entrepreneurs. Well, we're talking to one right now. <laughs> you know, your entrepreneurial roots are showing. I've been an entrepreneur from day one, and just like design, I don't think an entrepreneur is a job title. I think it's a point of view. It's who you are and how you work in the world. As an entrepreneur and a designer and a teacher and a business owner, what do you feel is your superpower or your sweet spot? What kind of things light you up the most? Hmm. If I have a superpower, oh gosh, uh, I have two. Um, I was going to say the superpower that's made me the most money for sure is I can learn something in one field and take it to another field and understand how it applies. So I started out being a designer and I designed products and then I became a manager and I designed my organization. I used to say I design a place where design can happen. And then when I became a startup person, I said I design businesses now. And now I'm designing my own life. Once you understand what design really is, you don't have to call yourself a designer to be great at design. And it's the same thing as not being an entrepreneur and using lean. You know, there's no reason that the lean startup model doesn't, can't help you figure out what your future is. When I left Zynga, I was so tired and I was burned out. And um, I don't know if I even really wanted to work in the internet anymore. And I took some time off and then I thought, okay, time to get back. What should I do? And I thought, well, I'm lean. I should form a hypothesis and test it. And so I had a hypothesis, which is, what if I like teaching? And I thought, what's the smallest possible thing I could do? I mean, I could have been one of those people who's like, and now I'm going to apply to school and go back to school and get my PhD. But instead, because I'm an entrepreneur and I have a lean point of view, I contacted General Assembly and I taught one night class and I discovered, hey, I like it. I, I'm enjoying teaching. And so I said, well, what else can I do? I tried teaching full time. I decided I didn't like that. Uh, I went on to CCA. I now teach part time. I do trainings and I write. I've found a balance in my life by treating my life as if it was a startup. And instead of product market fit, I was looking for life happiness fit, you could say. But I think that superpower of seeing a good technique and applying it to more places than people might originally think of. I think that's a pretty good superpower to have. And it clearly lights you up. Oh, yes. I love learning. I live for learning. When I was asked to teach the story class at CCA, I said yes, even though I didn't know that much about it. But, you know, 20 books later, I really deeply understand story and story arc. 
and it's changed everything I do. I apply story not just to my presentations and to my essay writing, but I actually apply story to the product development process. For example, when I'm working with entrepreneurs in the classes, I teach them the story arc, and then we take our end users and we put them through the story arc as if they were the hero. So we say, who are your users? What is their life right now? Okay, that's exposition. Now let's do the inciting incident, the thing that will cause them to change. What is the thing that might get them to think about adopting your product? Then we go through the struggles, the try-fail cycles. Okay, what else have they tried? What are the competitors? Why didn't that work out? How did they try to fix it for themselves? Why is that failing? Finally, we have the wonderful moment of your product saving them, and then we do the return home changed. So how did your product fundamentally change them? But that's a great example of taking something, you know, that you might not think uh, immediately applies to product development, but making it a much more effective way to understand how your product lives in people's lives. That's awesome. Thank you for explaining that. I could really see it. Yay. I think I'm going to use that. That's really useful. I mean, it maps to a pretty basic expository structure that immediately feels familiar. Absolutely. I have a nice little six-panel cartoon that I have my students do. I'm happy to send you a copy of that if you want for your own use or show notes. Show notes, baby. (laughs) Yeah, baby. (laughs) Yeah, I want to share it with everyone listening. Quite my pleasure. And it's great because it goes right back to what we talked about right at the beginning of this interview, which is your start as an artist. Something like that. (laughs) A painter. Talk about something with no story. You know, part of what's great about this field, design and tech and games, is that people come in from really different backgrounds. And you came in from your background. Other people come in through engineering or systems design or movies or, you know, D&D. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's funny because uh, people, you know, I, I feel really lucky that I came to technology at a moment where there was this new thing called the web and nobody knew what to do with it. And I was smart and that seemed to be kind of enough at that moment. And then my students asked me, is it too late, right? Is, is you know, everything codified? You have to have a degree and there's always a new thing. Like who knows anything about wearables? Who knows anything about, you know, AI or voice interfaces. Like there's always something new and there's always room for smart people who are passionate. So I'm lucky, but anybody can be lucky. You just have to be excited and interested, I think. What are you seeing that's new and exciting these days? What trends are you following or whose work are you paying attention to? Gosh, there's always something wonderful happening all the time. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but but there is, and there's always something cool for me to pay attention to. Right now, um, I'm interested in something old and something new. You're familiar with interactive fiction. You're an old school gamer, you know. Right. You walk down the hall. North is an oak door. uh, East is a box. What do you do, you know? I'm really interested in voice interfaces because I think that interactive fiction teaches designers to be able to design effective voice interfaces. I have this wonderful round box in my house. It's an echo. It's a, and I always say, uh, you know, hi, Alexa, tell me a joke. And then she'll tell me a joke. 
But the problem with Alexa and the problem with interactive fiction is that there are no affordances. There's no way to know what's possible. So if you can figure out how to design a game that clearly helps you learn what's possible, we can design a voice interface that will also help you learn what's possible. As well, because the old school interactive fiction allowed you to type absolutely anything into it, it's a lot like a voice interface where people can say anything to it. So you have to create a controlled vocabulary. You have to say, you know, uh, a book is the same as a tome. And then, of course, with a voice interface, you have to figure out if anybody can pronounce that. But I feel like the kind of thinking and the kind of challenges that came out of those really, really early command line interfaces are the ones that we're revisiting now. So learning about how those were solved helped us understand uh, how we're going to solve these ones on the future. These are things that are, are weirdly exciting to me and super fun. The other thing I really love is cooking. As you well know, I'm a passionate cook. Uh, I'm really interested in how food fits into the ecosystem. But when I took went to culinary school, I learned a lot about deep foundational understanding of material. For example, a knife, you know, we think, oh, we cut with a knife. Well, actually, we can do a lot with a knife. We can press with a knife. We can slice with a knife. We can saw with a knife. You think, okay, fire. Well, you can move the pan around so one side's hot and one side's cold. You can have a low heat. You can have a hot heat. You can cover it to make an oven. And right now, I'm really, really curious about the fundamental building blocks of technology. And are we really spending enough time to understand all the possibilities that are inherent in language, in our interface, in our codes. Do we understand our materials the way a chef understands its materials? And obviously not, because cooking is, what, like 20,000 years old or something, and the Internet is, what, 20? But I think that by doing other things that are outside of apps and technology, you bring back insights and understanding and approaches you couldn't possibly have any other way. So anytime I have free time, I try to go do something weird, you know, like let's take a storytelling class. Let's learn how to build a bike, you know, because I find that that's what makes me smart, way, way smarter than reading some venture capitalist blog, to be quite honest, you know, going out and living life is good for your body. It's good for your soul. And it makes you smarter. Distributed cognition. Oh, the whole world is making me smarter. And it could make you smarter, too, if you want to listen to it. Is there anything coming up for you on the horizon that is exciting that you want to tell us about? Well, I'm speaking at Cultivate at Strata Hadoop. And that's super, super exciting for a couple of reasons. I get to talk about OKRs at Cultivate, which is a terrific conference um, about leadership and designing human experiences. And by that, I mean designing companies and organizations. And then I get to hang out with the data nerds. And I'm super excited and thrilled to look at visualization techniques. Big data is one of those things that's kind of hidden inside the boxes. And I'm really interested in how we're going to bring it into the world so that people can interact with it. So super, super excited about all of that. Awesome. So we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Christina, for your time today and for sharing your stories and insights and expertise and tips. And it's just been wonderful. Oh, Amy Joe, thank you so much. It's been a blast talking to you. 
Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim. The shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.